Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. Warming oceans are affecting the population and distribution of fisheries all over the world. That could lead to more tension and conflicts as commercial fisheries are forced to move as well. The U.S. Department of Defense sees this as an important enough issue that it recently gave $1.4 million to researchers at Oregon State University. They're going to explore what past fishing disputes on the high seas could teach us about future ones. James Watson is the principal investigator on this project, which is launching in September. He is an associate professor in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University, and he joins us now. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here, Dave. Why is the Department of Defense interested enough in this issue that they're giving you this grant? Right. Um, so the idea, the idea about like fisheries moving, is of great importance to um, to the DoD. We're seeing more and more the militarization of certain fishing fleets. So specifically, the Chinese fishing fleets have been um, acting in ways. Um, that promote national interest, not just in terms of catching fish. And as a consequence, the DOD is really interested in understanding what the motivations are behind um, why certain nations fish where they do, and whether that's um, that's going to be a potential sort of a reason why or um, um, why why conflict might arise over fisheries. And um, there are certain hotspots around the world, but say, for example, um, one of the um, areas on, on the horizon that we're particularly worried about is the Arctic, which is currently off limits to fishing. But in the future, um, I think a lot of folks are I'm imagining that it's going to open up to not just um, transportation, which we've heard a lot about, um, but uh, certainly fisheries. And so access to these fisheries um, and how different nations gain value out of these fisheries in terms of both income and food is is of, of critical importance. Um, how might and how much might fish stocks be affected by climate change? I mean, what kinds of projections are you going to be using in your modeling? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, in general, right, what we know is that climate change, um, our, our planet is warming up, and this is affecting what I would call, say, the biophysical characteristics of both um, our terrestrial environments, but also our marine environments. And so these changes in the base characteristics, how warm the oceans are, um, where the currents are flowing, the pH, so the acidity of the oceans, this is affecting the, the marine, marine life that inhabits these uh, our oceans. Um, and, and these species, they like to stay within a certain sort of um, niche, environmental niche, as it were. And the spatial distributions so of where those spatial niches are, are shifting. And what we're seeing, what has been observed today and what is projected to happen um, uh, at, a, at a greater pace is a shift in these spatial habitats, these spatial niches, uh, to higher latitudes. So in the Northern Hemisphere, for us in Oregon, what we're imagining seeing is that the species um, are moving north towards the North Pole, and similarly in, in the Southern Hemisphere too. So these uh, shifts, these spatial shifts and where fish are, are gonna, is gonna change where fishing, where the fishermen go, where fishing happens. And this is, 
um, this is fine. This is good. Fishermen have dealt with these things um, for centuries. Um, but the magnitude of these shifts mean that we might observe them going across jurisdictional boundaries. So here in the US, that might be going from Oregon to Washington, maybe from Washington over up into Canada um, and so forth. Here, here, this is not an issue. We have really good um, institutions that enable fishing communities to deal with these shifts. But you could also imagine that there are places around the world where this is not so. And I mentioned the Arctic. This is essentially going to be a new, a new sea, a new ocean, um, and there's a, you know, we need new rules and regulations there uh, for um, fisheries um, to be able to expand in there in a way that is sustainable and one that doesn't lead to uh, conflict between the nations fishing there. There are other places around the world too that are um, of particular concern and for different reasons as well. And I want to turn to those in just a bit, but but just sticking with the the physical changes, and all of these are are based on projections, but there's a lot of data that that is that's going to them. How much are we just and I just I put that in quotes, I suppose, but talking about um, geographic shifts north northernward or you know t- toward colder waters. Mm-hmm. And how much are we talking about uh, an absolute decrease in stocks leading to not not just, you know, fish being in in this territorial water or this one, but fewer fish for anyone to catch? Yeah. Um, so whenever you st- just uh, study climate change, you have to um, you have to explore the full uncertainty um, in the climate change projections. There, you know, we've heard about that in terms of um, the average temperature of the Earth, and 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 that bleeds into or um, leads in leads to uncertainty in our projections of how. Um, changes are going to be seen in terms of fish stocks too. So there's great uncertainty, but in general, I think we're seeing um, a possible decline in, in certain fisheries. Um, I think what we what we've done is to conceptualize two forms of change that I think are, m- are probably more, most important in in the context of fisheries conflict. And so specifically, that's the uh, the idea um, that we might see the compression of uh, fisheries value into smaller and smaller areas. So you could imagine um, out in the oceans, out in the Pacific, there are certain areas that we go and we get fish from. And we, we economists would say we gain value from the oceans uh, by doing so. Again, that could be in terms of food, it could be in terms of culture, it could, it could be in terms of income too. What we're worried about is that as climate change happens, not only do we see a spatial shift to higher latitudes, so to the north here in the, in the northern hemisphere, we might see also a spatial compression. So that value is getting squeezed into a smaller and smaller region. Um, and at the same time, we, and that's the grand we, not just the US, but all these other nations that fish in the Pacific, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Philippines, the Spanish, um, and so on, are still trying to extract the same, if not more, value from that smaller and smaller area. And so that's one of the situations that might, uh, that we're concerned about, that might lead to um, instances of disputes over access and, and maybe conflict too. So let's There's a fo- second... Sorry, go on. Well, I, I want to focus um, for a little bit on the Arctic, which which you mentioned, which is one of the, the big parts of your research. As you noted, it's it's largely closed now to commercial fishing. In, in 2017, as I understand it, nine nations mm-hmm. plus the European Union agreed mm-hmm. to not engage in commercial fishing in the central Arctic Ocean for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that agreement, even that agreement, is going to hold? 
Um, it's hard to say, right? I mean, what, what I said earlier is more a personal opinion, less, uh, less as a judgment based upon the, um, the geopolitics involved. Um, what we, what we do know is that the oceans, the, the Arctic Ocean is going to change. It's going to open up. There's going to be less sea ice. Um, the theory, the ecological theory suggests that um, fish stocks are going to move into this new ocean. So the trailing fisheries will want to move into that area. So there will be a pressure, an incentive from fishing communities to um, gain access. To, to go where the pollock are or whatever. Exactly. And so that might then incentivize the policymakers to change um, the the policies regarding access to fisheries there. And if that would happen, the the crux of the matter is like, can we do that in a collaborative, cooperative manner um, that leads to sustainable outcomes um, or not? And and uh, if if not, what are what are those bad scenarios? What do they look like? And can we even be prepared for those as well? As I noted in my intro, one of the big tools you're going to be using is to to aggregate a lot of existing information about past conflicts in various places and and see what you can learn from them. Do you? I mean, are there already ones? Just as as a human, not as an, an algorithm, conflicts that that you already are thinking about um, in ways that that seem particularly important as you think about the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's important that we learn from the past. And so contemporary and also historical instance, instances of fisheries conflict are greatly informing how we think about and then conceptualize what's going to happen in the future. So this, for, for me, this goes all the way back to a sort of a very classic example in, in fisheries and international relations, which is the Cod Wars. So back in the 60s, 70s, the UK and Iceland came into conflict with one another um, with you know um, vessels being rammed um, over access to fish stocks in the North Arc, uh, Atlantic. Um, more contemporary issues um, are happening um, with the same level of intensity. So as a result of Brexit, we're seeing conflict over fisheries as um, previous rules, institutions, policies were basically, you know, had to be changed because of uh, Brexit. There are other, the other main um, sort of, Slash point for a lot of this is illegal fishing, and so this is another aspect of this of this problem of this project that we're we're hoping to contribute solutions to. And, and illegal fishing is is something that happens throughout the the world. Um, Can you give a is, sense for the, the scale of it and also what it means? Yeah. So yeah, a couple of things there. So you know, by some reports, uh, one in every. Th- three fish, so a third of all fish eaten has been caught illegally. Now that's gonna change from place to place. I'm not saying every fish we eat here in the Pacific Northwest has been caught illegally, but aggregated at the global scale, a third um, of all fish can be thought of as being caught illegally. So that's a huge amount of the global um, fisheries uh, catch. Um, And as a consequence, it's a huge problem. And um, so for example, um, shifting regions with uh, my group here at OSU have done a lot of work studying the Patagonia shelf. So that's a really productive area for fisheries off the Argentine coast. And here, this is a place that suffered chronic exposure to illegal fishing. Um, One example is from, I think, 2016. So relatively recently, a Chinese fishing vessel um, was found to sort of encroach in on the Argentine sovereign waters. Um, The Argentine Coast Guard came out 
chased this vessel and shot at it and actually blew it up with sailors on board. And this was only in 2016. So this kind of stuff is um, happening now, has huge consequences locally there, um, including you know the health and, and safety of, of, of fishers in the area. But you could also imagine how important that is on the sort of international geopolitical stage. If that kind of thing were to happen, say, in the South China Sea, which is another focal region for our project, uh, you could imagine the different actors involved and how that could be a flashpoint for some really important geopolitical uh, issues. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about the possibility of more international disputes because of climate change and because of fishing and, and conflicts between commercial fishermen or nation states um, as the oceans warm. James Watson is the mm. principal investigator on this project. He is an associate professor in the College of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University. Early on, you talked about China's militarization of their fishing mm. fleets. What mm -hmm. does that mean? Well, um, Relating to the previous example, it's 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 the idea that the fishing fleets, maybe not just picking on on the Chinese, although there has been particular concern about this, are operating as an uh, extension of national interest, not just in terms of uh, harvesting fish, say. Um, and so, in the context of China, you might think of the Belt and Road Initiative and sort of the expansion globally in terms of its presence, in terms of trade and uh, um, built infrastructure. Um, but it should be said that like, this is this is yes, there is a concern about China, but the the, the scale of um, and impacts of in industrialized fishing um, is is comparable across nations too. Um, yes, Chinese vessels fish uh, over the um, largest area globally, but other nations fish to a similar degree too. Whether they are using fishing fleets in a sim in the same manner, that's unknown that that's to, can be debated but these issues arising over fisheries and how international fishing fleets interact where they fish and um, what they do say for example if there is illegal fishing um is yeah it's it's, it's, it's a global a global issue in when you're going to be looking in the arctic in the um, bering and chukchi seas um, it really does seem like the issues there um, would pit the U.S. and Russia most likely against each other. Those are the the, the territorial oh. waters that um, that would be colliding there. Mm. How would you describe the state of relations currently between U.S. and Russian fishing operations? <laughs> um, well, you ha absolutely everything has to be contextualized in the broader geopolitical co um, context or so everything that's going on on the international stage in the specific instances of, of fisheries um this this varies greatly there's much heterogeneity from region to region there are different regional sort of policy offices um, offices that manage relationships and as we've spoken about um you know th there are these uh, bilateral agreements not to fish in the Arctic um and so, the U.S. and Russia are part of that, and so they're, they're you know, we're talking, and um, these agreements are being put in place. There is um, concern. I mean, just sort of theory in terms of what might happen um, in terms of what we call value asymmetry. So I spoke about value compression earlier. So the you know the area in which fisheries have um, can extract fish get, uh, reducing in size. Asymmetries are simply this idea that um, a fish a fish stock 
that it is in the jurisdictional uh, region of one nation, say the US, today might not be here in the future. It might move into the jurisdictional um, purview of, of a different country. So it might be Canada or it might be Russia. And um, this kind of asymmetry is is actually very common in nature. You just, just think of rivers. You've got a nation upstream and a nation downstream, but it leads to um, some pretty um, pretty difficult challenges. I mean, that can be overcome, but some challenges associated with um, coming up with agreements to to um, to avoid conflict over access to these resources. I want to turn back to this question of scarcity because if if that on either the the fear of it or the reality of it is at at some the deepest level um, sort of the root of these conflicts or potential conflicts, what can be done, if anything, to prevent that scarcity in the first place? Yeah, well, so scarcity is is for for a fisherman or even for a farmer, anyone that gains. Um, value from from nature, as it were. It, scarcity is is associated with um, with I guess you could say in this specific example, say your income, not the specific fish. So fishermen are, are highly adaptive, actually, and very resilient. You know, working on the oceans is is really tough, and there's bad weather. There's good seasons, bad seasons, and so fishermen across the world have developed their own means to adapt to these kinds of um, env- environmental um, ish, um, challenges. Um, and so you could imagine that scarcity in one fishery, like I said, maybe there's this value asymmetry. One fish stock is moving from here to there. What does that mean for me as a fisherman? Well, it means that I could have two options, maybe three. I could even, I could I could follow that fish stock. That might come at a cost, increase fuel costs, something like that. Or I could um, lean into my knowledge as a fisherman, my abilities, and start fishing more in other fisheries. And this is something that is sort of an in- innate resilience to fishing communities, the ability to fish among in different fisheries. Um, and the third option is, well, we could leave, you know, you could leave fishing entirely. This is not necessarily the greatest option, but there are options for leaving fisheries and working in other sectors. And so scarcity in terms of um, an income. Um, it's actually quite, um, it can, it, you know, the fishermen are quite resilient to this in, in some sense. Um, Although but, that, that kind yeah. of resilience that you're talking about, depending on the particular circumstances, it, it could be dependent on switching out the gear in your boat. to So, you, you know, maybe you're going to become a, a, a trawler instead of something else, or you're going to need traps or something, which, which could require resources. Is it possible that the kinds of shifts we're talking about are going to hit indigenous communities or the global south um, or just poorer countries um, in a more dramatic way? Well, right. Exactly. I mean, we talk about resilience. We talk about adaptive capacity, the ability to adapt in the face of climate change um, as a multidimensional thing. There is um, social, um, cultural dimensions to resilience, um, but um, it cannot be ignored. A major dimension of resilience is uh, economic. I mean, how much money do you have? How, what are your capital reserves? Because as you've said, in order to adapt, say, to fish in a new fishery, I need to buy new, new gear, um, and that comes at a cost. Um, I need to I need to know how to fish in that new fishery. So knowledge transfer is really important. Um, and my my ability to to do so greatly is greatly determined by how much money I have, 
And so as, as a fisherman, and so you can think of various ways that enable that resilience. Um, there could be um, financial um, instruments that allow uh, fishermen to sort of maintain their capital reserves in uh, in order to adapt. So we see this in farmers, so in agriculture, they have great access to financial tools like insurance um, or loans. And, and, and strangely, this is much less so in, in fisheries. And so working on these financial tools and a, a bunch of other tools that enable um, folks with less access to credit, less access to insurance, so that they're economically more resilient to these climate in, um, impacts, yes, will in the long run enable them to adapt and be more resilient to the long-term changes that we're seeing. How are you hoping that individual nations or, or you know, intergovernmental agencies, the UN uh, or others, how they could use your findings to reduce the risk of international conflicts over fishing? Yeah. So, I mean, the goals of the project are um, as follows. You know, we really there's a lot of um, basic science basic theory still to be developed to really try to understand how what, what are the conditions for when conflict might arise over changes in access to natural resources and in this case specifically um, fisheries through value compression and value asymmetry and so just deepening our understanding um, in that way it would enable us to identify those conditions and, and, and in addition to identify the conditions um, that en enable good outcomes in the face of these issues um, so cooperation, bilateral ag agreements, long-term thinking. In addition to this general theory, you know, we are uh, working on specific case studies. So we've talked about the Arctic, mentioned the South China Sea. We're also looking at migratory species in um, in the Pacific. And we're hoping to really um, make some very targeted recommendations about which species are moving where and who this impacts, which nations, which fisheries this impacts, so that we can start um, thinking about making suggestions for who needs to be at a table discussing uh, these uh, these things. And then third, yeah, it's this, um, this idea of um, thinking about um, new ways in which to um, value nature. I mean, throughout this entire conversation, we've talked about climate change impacts on uh, the value that we get out of the oceans. And a big part of this conversation is, is somewhat of a revolution going on in terms of economics. It's the idea that we can wrap um, measures of the value, of uh, the economic value of nature. So a fishery, yes, but maybe this mountain, this snowpack, this forest, this river, can the can we measure the value of these of these natural assets as they're called into our global me um, uh, uh, national metrics like GDP, and if we um, if we reduce the value of our natural assets through over harvesting or through conflict, um, um, that that affects our <laughs> us as, as a nation too. And so we're really trying to target ideas uh, and forward ideas of sustainability um, through these new this new sort of economic theory. James Watson, thanks very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. James Watson is an associate professor in OSU's College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Think Out Loud and OPB's critical reporting from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Do your part now and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod.